Hello class and welcome to another episode of the TM288 Historical Theology 2 podcast. I'm sitting here on a Friday afternoon, Good Friday, uh, getting ready to lecture to you on the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. And I've just completed a short while ago a devotional on the Holy Spirit. And it's been helpful for me to recognize how closely on the heels of the resurrection and ascension Pentecost comes and the connection between the Spirit and the doctrine of the resurrection. Christ is absent in one sense as he is in the flesh present at the right hand of the Father. But at the same time, Christ is present to us today in his divine nature through the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit who shares that nature with the Son. That connection is often overlooked, and the fact that we are separated from one another and that I'm separated from my church has inspired me to think a little bit more about God's presence and absence in this time. So I've found it fitting that we are addressing the doctrine of the Holy Spirit today. All right, with that little devotion on the side, we're going to be looking at Global Pentecostalism, Unit 5.6. And this lecture, more than many others I've done, I'm going to deviate some from the PowerPoint that some of you may be following along with. You see, I restructured things a little bit for the purposes of podcast lectures instead of in-person discussions. So we've already covered some of the content from 5.6. What I want to do today is we're discussing a little bit more about global Pentecostalism is to step back for a moment and think about the larger picture of the work of the Holy Spirit. Now, in one sense, for those of you who are in Historical Theology 1, you can remember the doctrine of inseparable operations, which means that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit work together in all things that they do. So in one sense, everything we've been talking about in both semesters of Historical Theology relates to the work of the Holy Spirit. In another sense, though, there are two phenomena we can speak of, which are appropriations or missions. An appropriation is a shared divine work that more clearly reveals one of the three divine persons than the other two. A mission is a divine work that is particular to one of the persons. For example, the incarnation is the personal work of the Son because only the person of the Son took on flesh. When we speak of the Holy Spirit, there are both appropriations and missions. So there are works typically attributed to the Spirit that all share in. For example, sanctification and the charismatic gifts, which we've been discussing over the last few lectures. Also, ecclesiology. We've looked, for example, at the Spirit's work in unifying diverse groups into one single Catholic, meaning universal, church. These are works attributed to the Spirit through appropriation, even though the other divine persons are involved in them as well. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, for example, Paul can say that Christ himself is our sanctification. Clearly, sanctification is not apart from the Son then, but is the Spirit's work in us to join us to the Son in holiness. There are also, however, certain works that are attributed uniquely to the Son, such as his death on the cross. Likewise, theologians often speak of the mission of the Holy Spirit, work that is unique to the singular person of the Spirit, because it is that person, that hypostasis, that eternal mode of subsistence of the Godhead, that is the one effecting a particular act 
in the created realm, in conjunction with humanity. Christ did so through the particular assumed human nature of Jesus of Nazareth that remains inseparably and indivisibly joined to his person even today. The Spirit does so through the indwelling of various individuals throughout history, including especially the indwelling of all Christians today. The doctrine, therefore, that most closely relates to the mission of the Holy Spirit is the doctrine of revelation, where the Spirit would personally indwell the prophets that they might speak truthfully, and where the Spirit indwelled the authors of the New Testament, inspiring their words so that we can say the words of the Bible are God-breathed. I note that all of these are related to the work of the Holy Spirit for several reasons. First, to step back for a moment and give you a bit better of a doctrinal outline to what we've been doing. I know that in some respects, pneumatology, or the study of the Holy Spirit, is so eclectic and so varied that your head can spin a little bit when you try and understand it. For other lectures, even though they've been complex, for other doctrines, I've been able to hand out to you nice little sheets that summarize the various key viewpoints and disagreements. Pneumatology is too diverse to successfully do this. So I know it can get your head to spin a little bit. So in naming all of that overlap there, my hope is that it might help you to understand a bit better uh, what the big picture is. Second, I name this because there's something of an artificial transition that we're about to do, leaving the doctrine of sanctification and the charismatic gifts, taking a break to look at global Christianity, and then returning to the doctrine of revelation. Perhaps those doctrines of sanctification and the charismatic gifts are not so sharply divided from the doctrine of revelation, for all are particularly connected with the work of the Holy Spirit. Third, I think naming these doctrinal connections may help you to understand something that may not have been completely clear in earlier lectures. In a Zoom meeting yesterday, Elsa asked me a question about why I was speaking of some of the interesting theological movements in China and in South Africa that weren't obviously Pentecostal in nature. I was able to explain to her that uh, these groups like the Taiping movement or Nongawuse's vision of a return of Jesus helped to illustrate a broader global phenomenon of emphasis on the supernatural working of the Holy Spirit. And Pentecostalism is only one branch of that wider emphasis. So, I want to talk today a little bit more in particular about that doctrine of revelation, even though we've mentioned it a little bit before in specific examples. The idea of revelation refers to some kind of profound experience of the Spirit that results in a knowledge of God. Sometimes it shows up in accounts like John Wesley's, where he speaks in terms of the Spirit strangely warming his heart, at which point he understood the gospel and the salvation offered through God. Sometimes it occurs in visions while awake. So Nongawuse among the Zosa in South Africa, having a vision of two men, one of whom claims to be Jesus Christ. This would be a claim to revelation. Sometimes it occurs in visions. So the Taiping movement in China, which began with a vision to a man that he interpreted to mean that he was the brother of Christ. 
come to be incarnate in China to establish the Lord's kingdom. Dreams of this sort are claims to revelation. And of course, finally, scripture is an example of revelation, where scripture claims to be inspired by the Holy Spirit to provide us true and factual knowledge about God. We can't necessarily dive into the doctrine of scripture today. We'll be doing that in our final doctrine unit. But I can speak a little bit more broadly about the doctrine of revelation as it relates to our questions of the Holy Spirit that we're considering. So to do that, please follow along with me on PowerPoint 5.6. I'll be starting on slide two. Now, historically, theologians typically spoke of two kinds of revelation. There was natural revelation. Natural revelation referred to God being made known through nature in a way that human knowledge could access this nature and understand God. So I give you a number of scriptural passages there. One that I might highlight is that of Romans 1, 19 through 20, where Paul writes that God's divine attributes were clearly made known to us through creation. Now, in contrast to natural revelation, supernatural revelation describes a revelation made known through some miraculous work of the Spirit. So through prophets, through Christ, and through the Bible. That's old terminology, and you'll still see it in some books, so I wanted to introduce it to you. But there's a newer distinction that I think is a little bit better. The reason being that language of natural revelation seems to imply that we can somehow know God without any work of the Holy Spirit. Newer terminology of general revelation and special revelation attempts to improve and clarify on this misunderstanding. So the newer terminology suggests that both general revelation and special revelation are a work of the Spirit. If I see nature, and from nature I am inspired to know something about God, even if it's a small something, something fragmentary, if that happens, then the claim is that the Spirit must be working in me to make this possible. So general revelation is revelation within creation from God that is supernaturally addressed to humans as creatures. In other words, it conveys something to us to help us understand what it means that God is creator and we are created. Special revelation, on the other hand, is revelation within the Bible or through the life and ministry of Christ from which God uh, supernaturally addresses humans as sinners. In other words, he addresses us with the fact of our sin and the needs of salvation. So the new terminology says the distinction is not between what we can know through our own reason and through the work of the Holy Spirit, but the universal work of the Holy Spirit in terms of what it reveals to us generically about God and specifically about salvation. Without special revelation, the claim is, you can't understand the cross, you can't understand the necessary truths of faith like the divinity of Jesus or the Trinity, and therefore, you cannot be saved. So an important distinction to keep in mind as we're thinking about the work of the Holy Spirit. And I should note that this distinction comes from B.B. B. Warfield, 
a North American Presbyterian theologian that we'll be talking about some in our next unit on the Doctrine of Revelation. Both general revelation and special revelation have a supernatural source, the working of the Holy Spirit. But according to Warfield, only special revelation is the byproduct of our knowing in a supernatural way, so that the Spirit in us is dramatically elevating our abilities and knowledge. Okay, I bring all of that up to turn back again to the question of global Pentecostalism and other spirit-emphasizing movements so that we can think about them in terms of revelation. Nonga Wuse claims special revelation from God, knowledge about what was needed for the Zosa peoples to be saved. The Taiping movement claimed a similar revelation, and they are not alone in as examples of global Christians claiming such acts of revelation. I want to talk for a minute about uh, one more example from the PowerPoint slides, and that's William Wade Harris, uh, before I turn to one example from our readings for today. William Wade Harris is perhaps the most effective evangelist in history. If that's not true, I would say he is at least the most effective evangelist of the 1900s, surpassing even famous people uh, like Louis Palau, Billy Graham, and others. Wade Harris was a Liberian on the Atlantic coast of Africa, among the Grebo people. He was imprisoned for agitating against the local government, which was considering handing over control of the nation back to the British. Sort of an interesting surprise. Uh, around this time and shortly after, many governments are, are seeking to move away from colonial rule, and Liberia is wanting more colonial rule. Well, while being arrested here in the 1910s, Harris receives a vision of the angel Gabriel, who commands him to begin missionary and prophetic work in what's today the Ivory Coast and Ghana. Wade was to go forth and preach a message of salvation by faith, warn of the imminent second coming of Christ, and emphasize the need to destroy local idols. William Wade Harris, who you can see a real photograph of on slide nine, is renowned for the few things that he would carry with him as he traveled from village to village. He would carry a cross staff, a Bible to preach from, a rattle, and a bowl of water. The bowl of water was used for baptisms, of course the Bible for preaching. The rattle there's some debate regarding. Some historians claim that the rattle was simply to alert the town to his presence so that they would listen to his preaching. Others, however, claim that the rattle was used by he and by several female followers in an attempt to summon the Holy Spirit. You see, Harris, besides his revivalistic emphasis on preaching, much similar to John Wesley or to George Whitfield two centuries before, in addition to that emphasis, Wade Harris had a major emphasis on spiritual warfare. One of the reasons why he so heavily emphasized the destruction of local idols and fetishes is he believed that they had real spiritual power, demonic power in this case, that must be battled with the spiritual power of the Holy Spirit. As this spiritual warfare went on, the Spirit, who of course would be victorious, would also illuminate the minds of those that he preached to so that they might understand the truth 
that is preserved in the revelation of the Bible and come to faith. William Wade Harris's ministry was quite successful. Estimates are as high as 100,000 converts in what is today uh, the Ivory Coast and Ghana. Now, Harris did not want to establish a church. He recommended his followers join the Methodists. A Methodist missionary showed up later and had one of the easiest tasks that they'd ever faced. However, not everyone joined the Methodists, and some started churches anyway. For example, the Twelve Apostles Church in Ghana is still present today, and it developed several interesting uh, patterns of behavior that came after Harris, but that distinguished the Twelve Apostles Church from other Christian churches. First of all, all of the leaders of this congregation, or of this denomination, excuse me, are women. They are denoted as prophetesses, able to speak as empowered by the Holy Spirit. Second of all, all of the services are held in open-air churches located at hostels, hospitality homes where travelers can come and stay, which are manned, or excuse me, womaned, I suppose, by the female leaders and prophetesses of the Twelve Apostles Church. They only hold Friday services, and when they gather, the entire congregation is clothed in red to symbolize the blood of Christ. So you can see a photograph of one of these congregations on slide 10 here. The emergence of the Twelve Apostles Church is part of a larger surge in African Christianity. In 1914, there are an estimated 4 million Christians on the continent of Africa, and many of these are Coptic and Ethiopian Orthodox Christians. By 1950, there were 75 million Christians in Africa, and the vast majority of these belonged to Pentecostal churches or to churches like the Twelve Apostles Church that are known as African Indigenous Churches, AICs. Pentecostalism has had such a decentralized authority structure, and the African indigenous churches are so varied that it's quite difficult to give a coherent sense to everything that bonds these larger groups together. Generally speaking, they have a large emphasis on the work of the Holy Spirit and on the supernatural work of God, while sharing, in many respects, a basic Protestant understanding of the gospel. However, at other times, their understanding of the gospel is hugely influenced by prosperity message. If you believe sufficiently, you will gain material rewards on earth. All of this diversity helps illustrate why I've had a bit of trouble giving you a very condensed explanation of the emergence of Pentecostalism, if that's even the right term to summarize everything that's been happening in the doctrine of pneumatology. And it also explains why I included some rather unusual and strange stories like the Taiping account. Wade Harris's successful evangelism and the successes and failures of movements by Nongawuse and the Chilean Pentecostal revival illustrate just how wildly diverse these spirit-centered movements can be. That being said, there still are usually a cluster of certain doctrines that are associated together in these groups. And I want to conclude our discussion today by looking at our reading from Sundar Singh. Singh grew up in a fairly prosperous family in India and was pursuing life as a Hindu mystic. 
when one day he received a vision of Christ in December 1904 that led to his conversion away from Hinduism, the distribution of all of his wealth to the poor, and his pursuit of becoming a Christian holy man. Now, if you read Singh's text, and you may want to pause it for a moment and pull it up in front of you, but if you read his text, you'll see a number of overlapping doctrines in a short number of pages that correspond to the sorts of doctrines that I have been discussing recently in lectures and that we will discuss in our Unit 7. Note the overlapping elements of these American theologies we've talked about. So on page 254, Singh makes a request to be filled with the Holy Spirit so that only God is desired. Notice that this mirrors some of the language we've seen with the Wesleyan doctrine of entire sanctification from the 1700s. Singh in the early 1900s is pursuing a goal of only wanting or willing God, which would of course prevent him from any intentional sin. Now on 255, Singh makes the connection between the work of the Holy Spirit and this purification which he never explicitly names entire sanctification. He does so with a rather beautiful analogy of charcoal. You can wash a piece of charcoal all that you'd like, and the blackness will not be removed. But if you put the charcoal in fire, fire removes the blackness, lighting up the coal so that it glows red and white. Nothing else will do the trick. In the same way, Singh emphasizes that baptism in the Holy Spirit which is a baptism in fire, does this to the Christian, removing the blackness of sin. Notice the similarities here with Second Blessing Wesleyanism. John Wesley's entire sanctification did not emphasize yet the Holy Spirit, but Phoebe Palmer's version of entire sanctification was entirely about a dramatic work of the Spirit. Singh here agrees. To my knowledge, there's not any substantive connection between his ideas and those of Palmer or Wesley. He continues on page 255 to argue that only those who have the Holy Spirit can understand the word. So he's moving from the doctrine of sanctification and entire sanctification and spirit baptism immediately into the doctrine of revelation. Finally, notice his frequent use throughout his document on being filled with the Holy Spirit, an emphasis that he shares with the larger phenomenon of Pentecostalism. It's difficult to know precisely where to categorize Singh, but it's quite obvious that his theological emphases overlap all of these other doctrines that we've discussed. And it's this general pattern and sensibility that loosely characterizes what I have been calling global Pentecostalism. So what do we do with this doctrinal overlap, with this global phenomenon? I'd say one of the most important questions that we have to wrestle with is the question of the invisible mission of the Holy Spirit. To put it succinctly, we face three basic questions, which I have summarized on slide 16 for you. The first question is this, does the Holy Spirit reveal God through foreign culture and religion prior to missionary arrival? Now, in the case of William Wade Harris, the answer would seem to be a dramatic yes. Harris, based on certain visions, went forth and evangelized and converted people who were waiting for missionaries to arrive and teach them how to do church. 
but there are many other instances that are not as clear, where missionaries may show up in a foreign culture and find that through visions or dreams or prophecies, some teachings that partially line up with the doctrines of Christianity are present, though there are often differences and disagreements as well. Should we attribute this work to the Holy Spirit or to demonic forces? It's a difficult question. Second, the invisible mission of the Holy Spirit, a mission that may not be visible through 2,000 years of church history but may be real nonetheless, prompts us to ask how European-based Christianity, which would include North American Christianity for the most part, given that it stems from European denominations, how can that European-based Christianity learn from global Christians? This is an important lesson, and I'm hoping I can draw out some lessons next week and later this week in our unit on global Christianity. Third and finally, we must ask the question how we evaluate the supernatural works of the Spirit, especially in contexts without a translated Bible. Individuals who claim to have miraculous visions by the Holy Spirit sometimes bear great good fruit like William Wade Harris. In other instances, they lead to violent wars and terrible tragedies, as is the case in the Taiping movement and Nongawuse. How can we tell the difference? This is an important task for anyone, but especially for those who will one day be involved in the mission field. And so I leave you to think over those questions as we prepare to turn to look a little bit more in depth into the history of global Christianity. Until then, be well.